listening to the Jay's Journal Podcast for July the 4th. Happy 4th of July to all of our American listeners. And if you're Canadian, you're probably still recovering from 150-year celebration, Canada Day. The Blue Jays are in New York, and they're actually doing something noteworthy. Winning today, big victory with Jay Happ on the mound, winning 4-1. to one. Roberto Osuna came in, closed it out. A lot of things went well for the team, including a bat-around inning, which prompted our side expert Chris Henderson to remark, I can't believe my eyes. And then I tweeted that I took the spinner from and started kind of seeing if maybe I was still asleep or in some kind of alternate universe quantum singularity. Whatever the case, the team's win is important. It's about building momentum at the stage in the game. You know, I was on the radio over the weekend with the Fan 590 and multiple radio stations across Ontario, and I was basically preaching patience and basically incurring the wrath as well of uh, trolls and other types on uh, Twitter that weren't thrilled that I was painting such a rosy picture. But the reality is, people, there are 80 games left in the season. And as long as you've got a good three months left of baseball, anything is possible in a sport that relies on momentum and chemistry to get itself over the hump, which is what this team is going to try and do. So I think we need to believe, not necessarily put our hands over our eyes and just imagine things, but look at the facts. And today's gritty effort is a start to that. I've got some great guests coming on, by the way, for you for tonight's show, including Graham Womack of the Sporting News, who's going to talk to me about the Major League Baseball Hall of Fame and some of the recent inductees and some of the real challenges when it comes to the voting process. First, I've got Josh Weinstein of the Toronto Sun coming on the show. He's going to talk to us a little bit about Devin Travis, the forgotten fallen soldier who is intent and desperate to try to come back this season, which is pretty amazing considering that everyone's written him off and we're enjoying ourselves at second base with whatever that rigmarole at second base is. You know what I'm talking about. It's a rigmarole. It's not pretty. So in understanding these challenges involving Devin Travis, I can't think of a better guest to bring on than an online producer and writer with the Toronto Sun and Last Word Hoops, Josh Weinstein joins us now. Josh, thanks for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me, Ari. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Listen, I'm glad you took the time to drop in and visit with me on this. Um, As you know, Devin Travis has been in the media quite a bit, and some of the discussion related to him has cooled off because the Blue Jays, quite frankly, have been horrible. But lost in the shuffle now, as you examined back uh, on a recent article that you published on the 29th in the Toronto Sun, you talked about how he still has hopes and designs that he'll come back this year, doesn't he? Yeah, he definitely does. Uh, Travis was telling me uh, when we spoke in the locker room postgame after the Jays win, uh, he was saying that he's really looking forward to trying to get back, although he doesn't have a uh, definite timetable for when he's going to come back. He says he's a lot closer to 100% than zero, so that's definitely a good sign for the Blue Jays, especially uh, being 10.5 games back uh, at this point, although we do await the results of this uh, Yankees game. But yeah, yeah having definitely. a guy of Travis's caliber uh, hopeful to come back before the season's over, it's going to be a huge boost for this Toronto team, especially with the hitting struggles they've had. Now, I'm sure as someone who's followed this particular player and had a chance to interview him, are you maybe concerned that this reputation of being known as a Dr. Glass type, someone who can't stay healthy, is this something that's going to dog him for the rest of his major league career? Because up until this point, it seems like he can't escape this perception that he's a very, very brittle major league player. How do you feel about that? Yeah, you're very right about that, Ari. I mean, he has had three major surgeries, uh, one on the shoulder and then two on his knee. 
which have kept him out quite a lot of time. Uh, he's missed quite a lot of uh, big league games in the regular season during his short career. But he is only 26 years old, right? So I do think that he definitely, if he can maintain a string of health for a few years going forward, then I think he could definitely sh- uh, get rid of that reputation of being uh, a bit of an injury-prone player. Obviously, he's had some bad luck to this point, but uh, I wouldn't count him out just yet. Uh, there are doctors at the major league level that specialize in trying to uh, prevent injuries uh, further in careers and keep their players on the field for as long as possible. So hopefully they can do a better job with Travis. Uh, haven't been that successful at this point. Give me the definitive Weinstein theory on exactly how he hurt the knee, because it seemed like many fans were confused about how one gets a deep bone bruise like that. Um, what do you think at the end of the day happened and, and why he is out for this extended amount of time? It's interesting. I think that the knee didn't actually heal fully at first uh, and that mm. he probably was rushed back a little bit too soon uh, by the Blue Jays. But once he got back, you could tell... I mean, he did start to come around in May, uh, 364 average during the month, but he didn't seem right from the get-go back in April, obviously started the season on the DL. But when he did come back, I think it was just a little bit of a rushed injury, uh, a rushed return from injury, rather. And I think that, yeah, he definitely, I think they should have really taken their time, just like the way they are with Aaron Sanchez right now. Obviously, that's a re-aggravating blister injury with Sanchez, and they're really just taking their time uh, making sure that their ace comes back when he's ready to come back, not when the team wants him to. Because, look, the Jays, we we all know, they did struggle immensely to start this season. Uh, unprecedented, really, the worst start mm-hmm. in franchise history. But the way that they were hitting, uh, they needed a spark. And I think that management felt that getting a guy like Devin Travis back into the lineup uh, would pay dividends. Unfortunately, I think they just rushed him back a little too fast and, it was bound to happen eventually, re-aggravating an injury that hadn't fully healed. I'm speaking with Josh Weinstein of the Toronto Sun and Last Word Hoops. So, Josh, what are your thoughts about uh, the Jays' options moving forward at second base? What are they left with to anticipate one day that Devin Travis will return? But in the meantime, what are they going to do, in your opinion, and what should they maybe do to help deal with the loss of a very significant impact player? Yeah, it's very tough, Ari. I mean, with Devin Travis out of the lineup, you don't only lose a great bat, but you also lose someone who uh, is pretty prolific in the field as well. Uh, What they've been doing now, obviously, is swapping in Ryan Gomes and Darwin Barney, which has had mixed success, but I think uh, really the only option they can have is just swapping those guys in, riding the guy who's hot, and just uh, waiting until Travis can fully get back. But obviously the uh, success at second base hasn't, quite been there uh, from a hitting standpoint with Travis out and uh, looking for more consistency in that regard would be pretty important uh, for the Blue Jays going forward. So uh, just really just looking to ride the ship with Travis out until he does eventually return. Well, that's it. And it's going to be a long and bumpy ride, uh, no doubt for the remainder of the season, uh, especially Mm -hmm. given some of the challenges uh, with ALE's divisional opponents. Do you think, Josh, that 81 games is enough time. Of course, it's going to be 80 after this victory that Roberto Osuna literally just uh, sewed up for the uh, for the Jays. Do you think 81 games is enough time for this team to prove itself to be a bona fide contender? 
Right. So now with the win, they're 9.5 games back of the uh, division lead. So, look, it's never too late. (laughs) Yeah, 9.5 back, and that second wild card is definitely within reach right now. But it is very tough to to really tell this. I mean, look, this team has been riddled with injuries throughout the first half of the season. We haven't really seen them fully healthy at any point of the season, for that matter. I mean, not at one point. So if they can really get all their guys back, and put a run together kind of like how they did uh, at the in the second half of 2015 when they went on that magical run to the playoffs. I mean, it's possible, but you do the questions are raised about an aging roster, and they are the oldest roster in the major league. So whether they still have that run in them is remains to be seen. But these guys have been talking and just speaking with the media over and over about how they do believe their run is coming and that they have the potential to go on that run. It just has evaded them to this point, and we'll have to see what happens because 81 games is quite a long time, and I do think that they will, they they do have the potential to do it. Mm-hmm. Whether that does actually happen, though, time will tell. Wise words and painful foreshadowing, perhaps, from Josh Weinstein of the Toronto Sun and Last Word Hoops. Josh, thanks for joining me this evening. Thanks very much, Ari. He's a baseball historian and a writer for the Sporting News and the National Pastime Museum. It's my pleasure to bring on first-time guest, Graham Womack. Thanks for joining the show, Graham. Hey, thanks so much for having me on. Well, you know, I, I can't think of better to ask this question because it's something that uh, I've had several roundtables throughout this month and I'm speaking with more and more of our friends of the show, and I'm always being asked about my opinions regarding the standards that exist with the Hall of Fame, in particular if the bar is being changed with what we consider a modern-day baseball Hall of Famer, in particular Major League Baseball. I'm wondering what your opinion of that is. Do you see the system today as being dramatically different? Are people overreacting maybe to the way some of these new legendary stars are being ushered in? Or is it a system that you feel that has worked very well for time immemorial and, of course, will be subject to the occasional scrutiny that comes with new generations of baseball fans? Well, that's a good question. Well, I mean, my my thought from, you know, you look at the last several elections and, and what you see is you see you see the, the Baseball Writers Association of America, you know, putting in a, a lot of uh, you know, a, a lot of uh, players on the first ballot on their first try. You see guys like Greg Maddox and Tom Glavin and Frank Thomas and Pedro Martinez. You know, all those guys and more getting in on their first shot. Meanwhile, the Veterans Committee, had, or what, what we would, you know, kind of colloquially call the Veterans Committee, mm-hmm. hasn't put in a living player, I want to say, since Bill Mazeroski in 2001. It's been a really long time. They've only put in three dead players in this time, Ron Santo, Joe Gordon, and Deacon White. So you have all these kind of top flight, uh, you know, players getting in with the writers, and then you have this older, these older stars who just, for the last 15 years, pretty much, they've just been out of luck. You know, guys like Dick Allen and uh, Louis Tiant and Tony Oliva and Minnie Minoso. And sadly, some of these guys like Minoso are starting to die. Um, and so I do think we're seeing a change. I, I, think, I think we're seeing these days the average Hall of Famer, you know, is really – kept a lot, a lot better on average than, you know, than some of the Hall of Famers in years past. And I think it's unfortunate because I, I, I think I don't, I'm not of the belief that there's just one type of Hall of Famer. I think there's different tiers of them. I think you have your inner circle greats, which the writers have been doing a tremendous job mm. of honoring. But then 
I think the Hall of Fame is also, you know, it's a historical institution. I think it's important that it honors different types of players, you know, second or third tier grades, you know, guys who, you know, might have a, a single claim to fame or two. You know, you don't want somebody getting in on the basis of one single achievement like Roger Maris hitting 60, you know, 61 home runs in a season. But, you know, I, I do think the Hall of Fame could be more inclusive than it has been in, in recent years. And I'm wondering your opinion, and I'm sure you've been asked this many times, Graham, when Major League Baseball made the change in terms of the allotted time to consider a Major League Hall of Famer, uh, down from 15 to 10 years, was that, in your opinion, purely a political decision? Because many fans initially, when being faced with such a change, began wondering whether or not that was addressing perhaps the steroid era and the fact that Major League Baseball wasn't prepared allow too much consideration to those players who had that proverbial odor of, uh, of scrutiny that came with it. Yeah, I mean, you know, you, you, you have the writers who, for the most part, have been have been sort of punting on, on guys, you know, or I should say up until the last year or two had been punting on guys who were either confirmed or suspected to use steroids. Now, in the last in the last couple of years, you've seen this change. You've seen Yvonne Rodriguez, you know, get in, who was included in the Mitchell Report, yeah, Jeff Bagwell and Mike Piazza, who there was never any evidence that they used, never a positive test or anything, but some writers did think they used, and some may ultimately voted for them in spite of it, you know. Um, I think when the when the Hall of Fame made the change a couple of years ago, I think it was kind of in direct response to the writers, you know, not having voted in a, you know, a confirmed or rumored steroid user to that time. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I think I had heard Joe Posnanski, one of my favorite writers, you know, he talked about how, you know, basically the Hall of Fame, you know, that they had accelerated this because they wanted the chance to vote, you know, on some of these themselves. I don't necessarily see that. I, if the Hall of Fame wanted to, it could confer, it could convene a mass election, you know, tomorrow to put in a bunch of steroid era candidates. I mean, you know, change with the Hall of Fame is at a glacial pace. It's usually pretty conservative. Um, yeah, they have a good thing going, frankly. I mean, it's the most exclusive, you know, sports uh, hall of fame, uh, at least in American sports. Uh, it's the one that people care about by far the most. I mean, I guess here in Canada, maybe people feel this way about the hockey hall of fame up there, but I can assure you they don't feel this way about like, the basketball hall of fame or the football hall of fame. Yeah, I, I don't think I could tell you a third of the guys in either hall of fame, um, whereas, I mean, the baseball one, I, I know pretty much every player is in there. I'm speaking with Graham Womack. He's with the Sporting News and the National Pastime Museum. And it's interesting that you bring up uh, comparisons to other sports because I myself have long believed that baseball is truly in a class of its own when it comes to honoring their legendary players, the ones that who truly were head, head and shoulders above the rest of their peers. And I don't think we were, we didn't receive very much uh, controversy this year with Bagwell, Rain, Rodriguez, there were people who thought that Hoffman and Guerrero probably deserved it on the shot, and I, I would be inclined to agree. But next year, we know they're going to get in. And we also know that players who've been trained will eventually get their opportunity. And we're seeing more and more of the players trending who were, unfortunately, associated with a very uh, dubious era. And you know, I'm especially referring to Roger Clemens and Barry Clemens. Do you see it as just being a matter of time and then forever kind of breaking the mold of people who were poo-pooing the that or a suspected story user will eventually become a legendary Hall of Famer? Yeah, I mean, I think Bonds and Clemens will both get in at some point. I mean, 
part of the argument with them, I mean, there's a couple things kind of working in their favor. One is there's this argument they were both Hall of Fame players, like, you know, before they're suspected to have started using. You know, um, aside from that, neither of them ever failed the test. Um, obviously, Clemens had that bizarre kind of appearance in front of Congress. Uh, Bonds, you know, obviously, uh, you know, had had his whole case that, what was it, he was ultimately acquitted or his mm. conviction was thrown out. But, uh, you know, regardless, I think at some point those guys will get in. If I'm not mistaken, I think they both cracked 50% in the vote this year. And if, if you even get 30% of the vote with the writers at any point, there's like a better than 90% chance that you'll get into the Hall of Fame at some point. It's it's more than likely going to what will be interesting is to see, you know, eventually when you get to guys like Alex Rodriguez, uh, you know, who who failed tests after after it was implemented in baseball, you know, if the movement ever mm-hmm. builds for guys like, you know, Rafael Palmero or, or Manny Ramirez who also had failed tests, I do I think eventually that could happen, but, you know, this all takes time. It certainly does, and, and Graham, we both know it's a delicate process where the player – knows that he will be branded a certain way, will have to deal with that in his efforts to become a Hall of Famer, and then hopefully not choose the Kurt Schilling method of maybe letting the mouth or the yap, the yapper run a little bit too much and then get him in sorts of trouble politically. There's no question that how the athlete conducts himself after the game can, of course, influence the writers. Uh, can you think of any examples where maybe a certain Hall of kind of did himself in by maybe his conduct or the way that he behaved after baseball? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I mean, uh, Pete Rose instantly comes to mind, obviously, um, you know, uh, you know, he gets, awesome. yeah, well, he, you know, and obviously, I mean, he, he played his last game in 1986 and, you know, gets banned for life in 1989 for sports betting. I mean, he's probably the most prominent example of that, you know, uh, Guys who delayed their their you know their inductions by what they did after. Let me think. I mean, because uh, it's funny. I can think of positive cases that have been the other way around, where it's like you know you look at like Burt Blylevin or, or closer yeah. to home for you, Tim Raines, who I think really helped their cases by what they said you know after. But yeah, guys, guys who heard it. It's uh, I know Orlando Cepeda is a famous example. Um, he got he got busted for. Uh, yeah, for drug trafficking, and he ultimately got in, but it might have delayed his case by, by 10 or 15 years. I know Fergie Jenkins had a cocaine arrest toward the end of his career, and another case of where he got in, but, you know, it, 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 he probably kept him on the ballot longer than he would have been mm. otherwise. Absolutely, and it's it's good that you brought up uh, the example of uh, Tim Raines. It was a very, very strong campaign north of the border, championed by certain uh, very strong sports personalities like Jonah Carey that ultimately contributed, um, I think, in, on his last gasp because this was his 10th and final attempt at, at making the Hall of Fame. So certainly Canadians were thrilled about that. Um, speaking of Canadian baseball players, Graham, you wrote a recent article in the Sporting News, which I enjoyed enormously, on Tom Hankey and his early retirement. I'm curious to know your thoughts on the Terminator and what younger fans maybe should be aware of when it comes to this former Blue Jays player that you maybe discovered and didn't know. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, it's funny. I, you know, so I, I'm born in 1983 and I, I probably started getting into baseball about 1989 or 1990. So I had, you know, I had Tom Hankey's card when I was a kid, you know, I always knew him as one of the best closers in baseball. And then, 
You know, 1995, he basically, he has this sensational season with the St. Louis Cardinals, and then at the end of the year, he hangs up his spikes, and he's done. So I was looking at it recently, and I saw that basically if he had played a few more years, he would probably be at least seventh on the all-time saves list. Uh, by Sabre metrics, he'd be about the third best closer in baseball history. So it's funny, I mean, with with closes, there can be really be such a thin line, I mean, that, that kind of divides them. And in Henke's case, I mean, I, I think you could probably make the case that he's one of the more uh, underrated closers in baseball history. No question, no question. I had Todd Stottlemyre on my show last week, and he had nothing but amazing things to say about Tom, what his work ethic was all about, the way he took younger players under his wing. And unfortunately, like anything else in life, was... Uh, you could say replaced for a short while by someone who was younger and was throwing a little bit harder and Dwayne Ward. I remember that uh, Ward ultimately was the one who got the key attention during those World Series years, but that franchise comes nowhere close without what Henke was able to do, I believe, uh, right around 1984 to about 92. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's funny. That actually, I got to say that that whole bullpen was, was, you know, was just stacked and full of of guys who, who really could bring it. I mean, you, know, you had Anki, you had Ward, you had David Wills, you had Juan Guzman, you had Mike Timlin, Scott Corn. I mean, I hope I'm saying his name right, by the way, but it's like, you know, you, 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 you go down the line and really one of the first deep bullpens in baseball history. I mean, uh, you know, the A's of those years uh, were, were pretty deep, but I mean, aside from that, I mean, Blue Jays were really one of the first great bullpens. Now, uh, one last thing I wanted to ask you, uh, related to uh, when it comes to our appreciation of how absurd and surreal baseball can be. Charlie Sheen was in the news and apparently had one of Babe Ruth's World Series things, which he sold for a great deal of money. How does that happen, in your opinion, Graham? How does someone like that end up with such a key piece of baseball history? Yeah, well, you know, it's funny. I mean, so, you know, say what you will about, like, Charlie Sheen, kind of about his personal problems in recent years, and the guy's just been a train wreck, but... You go back before then. He's actually, I mean, he's he's a tremendous baseball fan. Uh, you know, one of one of my favorite stories uh, about him is from the '90s. He he wanted a home run ball so badly that he and two of his friends bought out three sections of bleachers. I want to say in Anaheim, and there was this great picture that was in Sports Illustrated of basically the three of them just sitting in these totally empty, you know, just bleachers you know, waiting to try and get a home run ball. And unfortunately, this is Anaheim, and it's hard to get a ball out there. They actually didn't get one. But, I mean, you know, Sheen is somebody who, I mean, he played baseball and had the chance that he maybe could have at least played gotten drafted. He was in the major league. Um, He's friends with Brian Wilson, the Giants, for a while. I mean, he's just, he really does love baseball. Just unfortunately, I mean, he's, you know, his, his other you know, his, his major issues he's had in recent years have unfortunately kind of detracted from that. Well, I can't thank you enough for visiting with me tonight. What can you tell my listeners and followers of the Jays Journal yourself, maybe what you're working on and where they can find you online? Yeah, well, um, so I'm, you know, I'm a baseball, baseball a freelance baseball writer, so I, uh, yeah, I'm always working on stuff. I write I write four articles a month for Sporting News about the Baseball Hall of Fame. My car, my column is called Cooperstown Chances. Um, aside from that, for the National Pastime Museum, um, I've been writing for them for uh, about a year and a half. I've got uh, currently a series that's about to come out on the history and the founding of the Hall of Fame. I, I trace it all the way back to the early 1900s. 
So that'll actually, the first article in that will be coming out, I want to say on July 7th at the nationalpastimemuseum.com. If you want to follow along with my writing, you can follow me on Twitter at GrahamDude. Uh, that's G-R-A-H-A-M-D-U-D-E. My wife and I, it's funny, we're actually we're about to head on vacation, so my Twitter is going to be dark probably until about next Tuesday. But, uh, yeah, uh, feel free. Um, feel free to give me a follow. And, uh, and, yeah, no, like I said, I'm writing all the time. He's a baseball historian, a writer, the Sporting News, National Pastime Museum, and he's going off the grid for a short while. Graham Womack, thanks for joining the show this evening. Hey, thank you so much for having me on.